Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at North Kentucky University. My guest today is Yale political scientist Jacob Hacker. Dr. Hacker's work on economic insecurity and inequality has been extremely influential, and I've been a been big fan of it for really many years now, ever since one of my colleagues uh, handed me a copy of his book, The Great Risk Shift, and said, you, you just got to read this. And he was absolutely right. Um, now, in addition to The Great Risk Shift, Dr. Hacker is the co-author, along with political scientist Paul Pearson of Winner Take All Politics, and most recently, American Amnesia, How the War on Government Led Us to Forget What Made America Prosper. Dr. Hacker, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. You know, in the last decade, you've written three books that focus on economic insecurity and inequality in the United States. And based on your CV, this has been a primary focus of yours really throughout your career. And I'm wondering what drew you to this topic? Well, it's a good question. I started doing work on American health policy. Uh, My undergraduate thesis was on the failure of the Clinton health plan. And that actually ended up becoming my first book, uh, The Road to Nowhere. And I broadened out my focus when I was at graduate school to look at America's very heavy reliance on employment-based benefits, um, which makes us quite distinctive compared with other rich democracies and, and how that came to be and what its political causes and consequences were. And through those topics, um, you know, understanding U.S. health and social policy, I realized that what really drove me was concern about the changing nature of the American economy and and how that was changing our politics. You know, if you go back to when I was born in the early 1970s, it was kind of a turning point in American public and economic life. And it was sort of the the last gasp of the um, fairly equal robust economy of the of the post-World War II era. And for a decade, there was sort of unsettled economic times. But, you know, when I was coming of age in the 1980s, our political system had shifted sharply right, and our economy was growing dramatically more unequal. And at the same time, we were seeing more and more signs that the kind of economic security that middle-class Americans had once taken for granted was coming undone. And so The Great Risk Shift, which you mentioned at the outset, um, was a pretty personal book for me. I I started by describing my childhood in Eugene, Oregon, uh, where I grew up, and how how that uh, was such a different environment than the one that that we see today, um, where so many Americans are fearful of losing their health insurance or losing their job or um, not being able to deal with an unexpected expense including the expense of having a child. Um, And so many Americans are just one paycheck away from uh, not having enough to eat or um, enough to pay their debts. And so that to me is a a fundamental shift um, and it's a real reversal of the kind of story of American progress that defined us for for most of our history. And so I don't think there's any more important issue than, than understanding why the American dream has become so imperiled. And to me, it's really ultimately a political story. It's not, it's not a story about economics alone. It's a story about how our democracy has changed. 
Right. And, and as the title of your book would suggest, Amnesia, uh, American Amnesia, that we've, we've forgotten something, something very important about economic prosperity. And so what is it that you think we've forgotten? And I guess, who's the we who's forgotten it? You know, conservatives, liberals? <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I think most Americans have um, been part of this amnesia. But I want to be clear that amnesia can come about um, because of a traumatic blow. And, uh, <laughs> and I think that basically the conservative assault on um, the pillars of the post-war economic and political order have been a big part of that blow. So it wasn't an inadvertent or accidental shift, but I do think most Americans have really forgotten something fundamental. So, so what is that fundamental um, fact that they've forgotten it? It's that ultimately in, an, in a modern economy, you need to have um, a pretty substantial role for government. And, and this isn't something that's easy for Americans to acknowledge because we are um, inherently skeptical of government. But it's something that we came to accept and indeed even um, celebrate in the mid 20th century for a variety of reasons. The Great Depression and the response to it, World War II and the mobilization around it, all contributed to a greater confidence in the capacity of government and also contributed to the strengthening of government in ways that made America not just um, more civically vibrant, but also more economically prosperous. And that, that period um, spanning roughly the, the late 1930s to um, the mid 70s was a period in which we had what political economists call a mixed economy that worked pretty well, um, that involved government investing in education and research and development in uh, roads and other kinds of vital infrastructure and um, putting rules in place that protected us against financial crises, as well as creating some basic programs of economic security and, and opportunity from uh, Medicare, which was passed in 1965, to the expansion of Social Security after World War II, uh, to the creation of some of the programs that um, helped deal with poverty uh, in the 1960s. Uh, we also created the world's strongest higher education system. And uh, that was a legacy of investments that were made as far back as the mid uh, 19th century, but culminated in the, in the post-war investment in the GI Bill, in research and development, in um, higher education at the state level. And so for all these reasons, I think we were really the world leader in creating a vibrant public-private partnership that, um, that not only was producing really good um, economic outcomes, but also really good social outcomes from improved life expectancy to um, declining um, social and health disparities um, to um, increased mobility and opportunity, particularly for those who had been left out of the American bargain for decades. And um, our book, American Amnesia, is a, is a wake-up call, we hope, to remind us that we once had a model that worked well, 
but that that model has really eroded. And part of the reason it's eroded is we've really forgotten uh, that well-functioning government is essential to a well-functioning capitalist economy. Right. And and certainly that forgetting was aided and abetted by a lot of very concerted uh, action by by a number of interests, as you point out, throughout the book. It's really sort of a, a chilling story at points, at least I yeah. found it to be. Uh, you know, I, after I finished, it was kind of uh, serendipitous, after I finished American Amnesia, I started a book called The Fractured Republic by uh, the conservative writer Yuval Levin. And I know you're familiar with this work. You and uh, Paul Pearson wrote a review, actually, of the book, and I'll link to that in the show notes. But one of the claims that Levin makes is that the problem isn't that we've forgotten anything, but that liberals, as well as conservatives in a different way, are, are suffering from what he calls a nostalgia from a uh, very unique time in American history that we just can't go back to. And it isn't just Levin. You know, there are economists like uh, Tyler Cowen and Robert Gordon and others who've said that that period from, you know, right around 1945 to the early 70s was unique. And because it was unique, we shouldn't look to it as a model. And I'm wondering what you think about those arguments. Well, there's certainly the it's certainly true that there were a lot of very favorable circumstances in the mid 20th century that helped make this model as successful as it was. But the implication that we, that the decline of that model and the decline of many of these outcomes is inevitable is belied by the comparative cross-national evidence. So one of the things we do at the beginning of American amnesia, I think it's really powerful to just look at how the U.S. stacks up against other rich democracies. And I can summarize the basic story across all these indicators as being, we're getting better, but we're getting better very slowly and, we're, and much more slowly than other rich democracies are. The only area where we're kind of excelling <laughs> relative to other rich democracies is inequality, um, which has grown far, far more in the United States than it has uh, in, in almost all other um, similarly advanced countries. So uh, let me just give one example, right? Um, recently, Angus Deaton and Ann Case, the Nobel laureate economist um, and fellow economist um, at Princeton, uh, have been doing this research on life expectancy and mortality in the United States. And what they found is that middle-aged white Americans are um, experiencing no increase in um, life expectancy, and in indeed are probably, you know, depending on which group you look at, experiencing an increase in mortality. And a lot of this is driven, sadly, by these deaths of despair, uh, increased chance of opioid overdose, increased uh, chance of liver poisoning, uh, increased suicide rates. And what's really striking is that not only um, is this distinctive to white middle-aged Americans, particularly those without a college degree? Uh, it's also, uh, so it's not happening with Hispanic Americans in the United States or African Americans. It's also distinctive to the United States. Every other country has seen mortality um, continue to decline as, almost as rapidly or as rapidly as in the past. So when somebody says, you know, we can't go back to the, to the mid 1950s. I I'd say amen. Right? There was a lot of problems in this period, not least um, the exclusion of of uh, African Americans from full membership in the mixed economy. 
But when they when they take that to mean that all that's happened since then is inevitable, I think they're really missing the boat. There, there has been um, a politically engineered um, shift that has led to rising inequality and declining outcomes across these various areas. And if we were able to make our democracy work better, we would definitely see an imp- a much greater improvement on all these measures. And I, and I think Americans are starting to recognize that. I mean, there, there is no shortage of anger and despair about the state of our economy and society. What there isn't, I think, is an understanding of how vital um, a well-functioning democracy uh, and a well-functioning government are to tackling these problems. I believe I'm very optimistic about our capacity to deal with a lot of these problems if we can get our politics to work again. And when you talk about these other countries that are uh, improving much more rapidly than the United States uh, is, these are these are countries that by and large have uh, uh, still have that sort of mixed economy model that we had in in previous decades. That's certainly the case. And and I don't want to romanticize other countries as well. I just think it's it's in fact, what's really interesting, if you look at these statistics, is that. We, we really underperform almost every other model. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so it's almost as if what we used to be considered this exceptional nation because we were exceptionally awesome. And now when you look at the statistics, we're exceptional because we're exceptionally underperforming. And when you see that kind of consistent underperformance, you have to think that it's more than just some kind of big shift in the overall economy or in society or its norms. Um, it's, it can't be globalization if it's not happening in other countries that are in the global economy. It can't be technological change if it's not happening in other countries that are experiencing massive technolog- the same massive technological shifts. So these things all matter. But the central message of every one of Paul's and my books is that politics matters at least as much. And I think that message has gotten through. So when we wrote Winner Take All Politics in 2010, the debate about inequality, which was definitely heating up, was dominated by economists who were focusing on the growing disparities between those who had and didn't have a college education. And the implication, if not explicit argument in most of the work that was done was that this was just really a a global phenomenon due to increased uh, trade and financial integration and technological change. And we, we argued in Winner Take All Politics that while these forces mattered, that they, their effect was just greatly mediated by how well political systems work to try to continue to represent the interests of middle and working class citizens. And that message, I think, has gotten through. I mean, I, the, the, it hasn't I'm afraid, changed the policies <laughs> that are being pursued in Washington right now. But in terms of how serious thinkers are looking at the economy and uh, at our politics, I think that message has gotten through. I, I actually think we have a lot of good ideas for how to make things better. The challenge is really figuring out how to um, get those ideas uh, into our political life and to actually make them a reality. Right. 
Now, one argument that I've heard from not just from Yuval Levin, but a lot of other conservatives uh, about inequality, and this is that uh, what he calls and others call the standard liberal view of U.S. economic history from, you know, the 70s to, to now, really, is just really exaggerated. And, and there are claims that, that you, uh, as well as other people like as uh, Tomas Piketty, have, have you know, the claims that you've made about a stagnating middle class, uh, wage growth and productivity growth being sort of decoupled uh, and inequality being historically high, that these claims just don't stand up to critical analysis. Now, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this a bunch of times before. So I'm wondering how you respond to this sort of critique. Well, I mean, I think that there's this sort of two, two responses. My flippant response is basically, what are you going to believe? Um, uh, conservative critics or your own eyes, right? I mean, if you go and look at what's happening in the United States, if you look at the anger um, and, uh, uh, and despair in many communities, if you look at the populist pressure within the Republican Party, um, you really see that the that working class people have been under enormous pressure for 30 or 40 years. And the less flippant answer is to say that none of these critiques have really compromised the central message of the work that I've done or that uh, Piketty has done that shows that the United States is really distinctive for having had um, slow to no growth in incomes uh, uh, for uh, for Americans in the middle class and below. Um, perhaps the most powerful recent work that's been done on this has actually been done by uh, Piketty and his colleagues, where they've actually combined um, the standard census data with administrative tax data. And what they show is that in the United States, the share of national income going that's going to the bottom half of Americans has fallen from around uh, 21 percent or so in 1980 to around uh, 13 percent in 2015. Meanwhile, the share going to the top one percent has risen from around uh, 11 percent in 1980 uh, to over 20 percent or just around 20 percent in 2015. So we've seen a, a perfect reversal if you will, of the position of these two groups. And so there's, you know, there's just no way you can cut that data to make it look good. Meanwhile, if you go to Europe, Western Europe, the share going to the bottom 50% of people has stayed relatively constant at around 22%. And the share going to the top 1% has risen modestly from about 10% to about 12%. So first, the U.S. is really standing out as having bad outcomes for people who are not in the top third of the income distribution, and uh, the and it also um, it's also the case that this doesn't seem to be inevitable because not all countries have experienced it. Uh, the other thing to say is that there's no dispute about what's happening at the very top. So you know we, we're really debating whether middle class Americans have four or five thousand dollars more on average than they did 20 or 30 years ago. But what, what's happened at the top is that we've seen the share of income, you know, going to the top 0.1% quadruple, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and average incomes in that group before taxes, you know, rising 
you know, from a few million to double digit millions uh, on average. So so there really is um, a distinctive story about the United States. And it's one in which um, most of the rewards of economic growth have gone to the very top. Right. And the standard conservative response I always hear is, well, maybe so, but that's the price we pay for such a dynamic, high growth economy with such great uh, economic mobility. And yet the data right, shows that uh, those things aren't really as true as they used to be in the United States. No, I mean, social mobility certainly hasn't risen. Um, that is movement from one class to another. And it was never particularly high in the U.S. I mean, it was at one point, actually. We used to wor- lead the world in social mobility. But since the, you know, for the last 30 or 40 years, it's been pretty, pretty um, limited upward social mobility of that sort, moving from one class to another. I think the the most important question about mobility for most Americans is, are we going to have a do, do do our children have a better income life quality of life than we do and and i want to be clear quality of life is about a lot more than income that's why it's so worrisome that all these other indicators regarding health and education uh have uh and other good outcomes have gotten have not gr- have not increased uh very dramatically at the same time that inequality has risen but um but if you look at absolute mobility, do people have higher incomes than their parents? The recent work of Raj Chetty and his colleagues at Harvard shows that the chance that a child will um, have a higher income than their, than their parents has gone from about nine and nine 10 for someone born in 1940 to uh, one, you know, five and 10, you know, a coin flip, one half chance for children born in 1980. And Chetty and his colleagues asked the simple question, well, how much of this is due to the fact that the US isn't growing as fast as it used to, and how much of it is due to rising inequality? And the basic answer is that if we hadn't had an increase in inequality uh, between uh, 1980 and today, um, then we would have seen the chance of having a higher income than your parent stay very high, it would have dropped to about eight and 10 from nine and 10, whereas it dropped, of course, to five and 10 or 50-50. So so that's a complicated statistic, but the basic point is that inequality is a fundamental reason why people are not experiencing the kind of upward mobility they used to. And the last thing I'll say is just that while the U.S. has had a good record of economic growth, if you track, if you look across countries, there is no evidence that higher levels of inequality or faster growth in inequality is associated with faster growth. Now, one thing that really fascinated me about uh, about American amnesia was your discussion really throughout the book of how business organizations have uh, altered their approach or really, I guess you could say, even their basic orientation to politics over time. And I was wondering if you could Talk a little bit about what that change was and why it happened. Yeah, it's a really important point because I think people just assume that corporations have always been really active in American politics. And it is true that if you go back to the early years of the corporation, if you think about the huge, you know, trust that dominated American society and the economy in in the early 20th century, like Standard Oil or uh, J.P. Morgan and his um, 
that those those companies had a lot of political influence. But the period that we are talking about, uh, where incomes inequality didn't rise and in fact compressed substantially, the mid 20th century also featured a much uh, more even um, uh, political playing field between business and labor, between workers and executives. Um, and we've seen that unravel, you know, the, the playing field has become very tilted towards business in the last 40 years. And the real story that Paul and I tell in Winner Take All Politics is that business basically mobilized in the 1970s. And you can even date the mobilization. It's really between the early to mid 1970s and the late 1970s that business really stepped up its activity. I mean, this is the period in which the Chamber of Commerce is kind of reborn as a serious institution. The business roundtable is founded. Um, you have um, the first serious political action committees. And it all comes down to this big fight that takes place in the late 1970s um, under Jimmy Carter over labor law and taxes. And basically, everyone thinks that we're going to update labor law to make it easier for unions to organize in the changing economy. And that fails um, unexpectedly because of business lobbying. And then nobody expects we're going to pass a bunch of corporate and capital gains tax cuts. And yet we do that in 78, even before uh, Reagan comes into office. So it's a really good illustration because it's not that Carter suddenly became a conservative. He was always a kind of ambiguous Democrat, but he wasn't the story. The story was that business stepped up his lobbying. And today, if you look at the political landscape, unions have declined dramatically as a, as a force in American politics, as, as well as in the workplace. Um, now, um, we've also seen uh, uh, public sector unions, which were kind of the 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 most um, substantial portion of the, of the union unionized workforce because private sector unions have declined so much. Now, public sector unions are, of course, under serious assault uh, as well. Meanwhile, business has gotten more and more sophisticated. I, I mean, there are two examples. In America Amnesia, we talk about the Chamber of Commerce, which has become a very, very powerful and very tightly Republican allied uh, lobbying organization. And we talk about the Koch brothers and the fact that they've created their own very powerful network uh, outside the Republican Party that has definitely had an impact on um, the agenda of the Republican Party. Yeah. Now, some conservatives who might even agree with this would say, well, sure, but business had to do that because the global environment changed. You know, that global competition basically forced American businesses to get involved, to push back against unions and regulation because they were facing all this competition. I mean, do you think there's any any merit to that to that view? Well, there is merit to the view that business mobilized in the 70s because they were getting their clock cleaned in <laughs> Washington. But it wasn't globalization that was hitting them. It was actually Ralph Nader and public interest groups who were bringing environmental and consumer issues to the fore for the first time. Somewhat ironically, um, the while corporations were mobilizing with the threats of the 1970s in mind, labor unions and uh, public interest groups, uh, the real threat that they were facing in the 1980s uh, and 90s was coming from uh, the much more active uh, uh, financial investors, 
of that period and from global competition. And so if you think about what was the biggest force that changed corporate America, it was not government and it was not regulation and it was not even globalization. It was financialization. And um, it's hard to remember, but if you went back to the 1970s or even or, or earlier, most corporations were had pretty stable management. That management tended to retain most of the profits um, as um, for internal investments. It tended to raise pay in line with executives' pay. And after the early 1980s and the big corporate takeover movement and the rise of junk bonds and other financial instruments, corporations became very different. They were much more oriented towards short-term shareholder value. They paid their CEOs, who were much more mobile, a lot of, a lot of money. Uh, and, um, and they tended to take profits and use them for financial engineering. So we're seeing this right now. Everyone's talking about the companies that have taken the corporate tax cuts to pay their workers a bit more. Hey, look, bonuses. But in fact, the research is showing that most of the money um, you know, something like nine and ten dollars is going into stock buybacks and other types of financial engineering. That's a fundamental change. And again, it's a change that's pretty distinctive to American corporations. It was enabled and furthered by the political and policy developments of the 1980s and 1990s. So I don't I would say that corporations did have to mobilize in the 70s because um they, they felt they had to because they faced domestic political challenges. But ironically, today's corporations, I think, um, are um, ex- you know, extremely narrow in their focus and short-term oriented, not public-spirited in any substantial way. Um, and that's a big shift. Um, and so their corporate political activity is, I think, um, in line with that very narrow focus. Let me just give one example. So the business roundtable is supposed to be the, the statesmen of the economy or stateswomen, uh, although most CEOs remained men. But the business roundtable has essentially spent most of its time over the last decade focusing on sh- the compensation of top executives. You know, its number one issue a few years ago was whether or not there could be proxy um, access to shareholder um, ballots so that companies might face some external challenges and the CEOs did not like that. And so the business roundtable was very organized against that. Where is the business roundtable when it comes to the big challenges of the global economy? The fact that we're not investing enough in education or infrastructure, you know, those, those are the kinds of collective issues facing corporate America where you really want corporations to be mobilized. So I'm not very sympathetic to the view that corporate America needed to mobilize, needs to mobilize today because it's facing these big global challenges because what the corporate lobbyists are doing has very little to do with those challenges and a lot to do with getting more money for executives. Right. There's there's one final conservative argument I want to get your take on, and it's that, well, even if there has been an increase in economic insecurity and inequality, what there also has been an increase in is the, the quality and on options for consumer goods and that Americans and as consumers are better off today and have a higher standard of living than back in those you know, so-called golden age, the height of the mixed economy. I hear a lot of that and basically arguing that that sort of made, made up for some of these negatives. What do you think about that? 
you know, I think you can endlessly debate these questions. Is Facebook worth more than job security? (laughs) You know, but here's how I look at it. First, all of these measures are adjusted for inflation, right? So inflation is supposed to take into account the change in the quality and cost of goods. So we can have a debate over how well it does it. But given the rise in inequality, it's not going to change our picture very much where we where we come down. So rising inequality isn't at all about, um, you know, about it can't be just really about the sort of quality of goods because you know, every every American, even the the middle class and the rich have access to similar goods. In fact, there's some recent research suggesting that the rich actually have the ability to kind of um, get better deals. Um, Thomas Piketty has you know, famously argued that rich people get a much higher rate of return on their savings. But but I'm not going to go into that. The point is, you know, all these figures take that into account. There's another thing I would say, which is that. um in a lot of ways, people have less freedom than they did a generation ago. Now, we have more freedom with regard to fundamental choices about our sexuality. And there's no question that African Americans and women have gained uh, much greater um, freedom relative to the period prior to the 1960s and 70s. But if you think about freedom involving the ability to have basic economic security so that you can look to the future with confidence rather than fear. If we think about freedom involving the freedom to be able to be collectively represented at work by a union, if we think about freedom as the freedom that comes from having basic kinds of public goods, you know, high quality public schools uh, and parks, all of those forms of freedom, I think, have been compromised by the erosion of our of our government. So I don't think you can sustain the argument that um, that that the improvement in our lives, which is real, um, outweighs or somehow wipes away the increasing disparities and in, uh, insecurities that we see. And, and that's the fundamental point, right? I do think I want to come back to the thing I said before, which is that we are not doing as well as other rich democracies improving the well-being of of our citizens and. The fact that um, that we are falling behind other countries despite our great wealth really suggests that there is a problem. And we can agree that, that life has been getting better in many ways and still feel that we're not doing enough to ensure that, that it's getting better quickly enough or that, it, that those improvements are reaching a broad enough portion of Americans. And you know what? I think that's what most Americans think. So. Um, I think conservatives uh, who are saying, you know, don't worry, be happy, are really are really in the minority. And even their own political leadership now is being buffeted by these forces. You know, why is there so much turmoil in American politics today? I think a lot of it has to do with the anxieties people are feeling. And the challenge we face is how do we turn those anxieties and those concerns into productive um, improvements in the capacity of our political institutions and our government to address these problems, as opposed to pointing the finger at scapegoats like immigrants or, you know, um, or closing our borders to, to trade. You know, those are those are really, um, I think, really backward looking policies. So the nostalgia in American politics today is certainly not exclusively on the left. There's a lot of it on the right. Um, and when when Donald Trump says, make America great again, 
I think a lot of what he's saying is, you know, let's take America back to a world there where, um, you know, where people who aren't um, white know their place. And I feel like we need to accept the major changes in our society, but then also understand that um, we're not doing a good enough job ensuring that all members of our society are sharing in the, the prosperity of this nation. Right. Well, well let's, let's uh, end by talking about solutions, something more positive. At the conclusion of your book, yeah. it's that, you know, the positive some society, which it's a nice, uh, nice positive sounding thing. So my question is, how do we plausibly get there? I mean, given the polarization, given the money in politics, given the influence of business interests who don't seem to want to go in this direction. What to, what do you see as a possible path forward? Yeah, well, first thing, I want to really emphasize this point about the positive sum society. You know, a positive sum game is a game where everyone can, can get better off. And I feel that too often we think about our economy or our politics in zero-sum ways, as if each person's, you know, one person's gain is another person's loss. A lot of the kinds of transformations that I've talked about that were part and parcel of us becoming the richest nation the world has ever seen were positive sum changes that helped not just those at the bottom, but those in the middle and those at the top. Um, you know, <laughs> for a rich person today can expect the life expectancy, you know, over, of between 70 and 80 years. Um, in fact, most of the gains in life expectancy over the last 30 years have been among more affluent Americans. And no one no one would want to roll back the clock to a period in which even if you were living in a mansion, you could only expect to live on, you know, to 40 or 50 years. So we have seen these huge positive sum changes. And Paul and I in, in America Amnesia point out that there's an enormous amount of money on the table that, you know, this is where I depart from Robert Gordon and others. It's it's going to be hard to experience the kind of growth rates we did in the past, but that doesn't mean that we can't improve our society in an enormous range of ways if we make uh, good, wise public policies. So the challenge then is how do we get our government to work well again? If you don't think government's part of the solution, then you, you know, you, you don't worry about that. In fact, the fact that our government is so dysfunctional is just another argument for tearing it down, but we've seen where that leads us, right, to this vicious doom loop of dysfunction, right, where, which has meant um, that we've been moving backwards or improving very slowly in all these areas. So we do need to get government working again, and, and there's no magic bullet, but I think there are two things that I would emphasize. The first is that Donald Trump is a huge challenge <laughs> to effective government. He is America amnesia incarnate. But um, but at the same time, he is presenting an unexpected opportunity for a significant mobilization in favor of a better, uh, stronger democracy. You know, if Hillary Clinton had been elected with a Republican Congress, we would be talking right now about the kind of continuing dysfunction, gridlock, um, slow erosion of our of our government. Instead, we're talking about the resistance. Um, to Donald Trump, we're talking about record turnout in Democratic primaries. We're talking about a big shift in all of the elections so far toward Democrats. And I, I want to be clear, it's, the Democrats have their own pathologies. But the, the fact is, is that for things to change, there has to be a significant um, ac accountability moment, as George W. Bush once called it, 
for the Republican Party. It has to face some backlash for the kind of um, negative, uh, destructive uh, politics and policies it has pursued. So I think we have more opportunity than we would have had under Clinton. We also face, of course, much graver threats. And if this election doesn't involve some significant backlash against Republicans, I fear that we're going to see uh, a very rapid erosion and continued erosion of our democracy. The second thing I would say is that um, is that if you go back and look at the mid 20th century, it wasn't one thing. Um, there were a lot of favorable circumstances, small things that added up to good outcomes. And I, I really believe that if we can get, if we can turn around our ship of state, that, that can be self-reinforcing. So if we see an electoral reversal and then we see the pursuit of some policies that um, directly affect in people's lives in positive ways, let's say massive public investments in infrastructure to deal with the threat of climate change and to rebuild our crumbling roads, bridges, and other infrastructure, that would put a lot of people to work. That would be visible. That would mean that we would be driving on roads or taking rails or, 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 or traveling on rails that are well-functioning in ways that make it more likely that we can do those things in the future. So it's there is no magic bullet, but I do think that there is a, a path a self-reinforcing path toward a better functioning government. And I think Americans are ready for that. Like we've seen a real softening of the kind of generalized uh, anti-government sentiment. Instead, people are just feel as if our government is captured by special interests. And if we could tear it away from special interests, it would be really vital. We see that people are more supportive of government's role in healthcare. We see that people are more supportive of government investing in infrastructure. We've seen a real falling away of the anti-tax sentiment uh, among most Americans that we once had. Um, and we've seen the Republican Party having to respond to that, right? I mean, Donald Trump did not campaign on an anti-government platform, and he won. Um, so, Republicans right now are trying to sort of hold this more positive view at bay by basically emphasizing, um, you know, the the threats that white Americans face from trade and from immigrants and from non-white people who are and younger people who are becoming a bigger part of the electorate. That's a very backward-looking strategy, and and to the extent that it can be overcome, I think we're going to start seeing a a, a more I'll say it, progressive view start to be prominent in our public life. Okay. Well, on that uh, unusual note of Donald Trump perhaps being the change we truly needed. Uh, <laughs> well, he may not be the change we need or the change we can believe him, but he is the change we've got. There you perhaps. go. All right. Well, with that, we will close. Uh, Jacob Hacker, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Michael, it was a true pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Support from listeners just like you is what keeps the show going, and we truly do appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon or PayPal links you'll see there. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast app you use. Share this episode with your friends and followers, and pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also helps. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. 
Our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post things throughout the week is facebook.com slash page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.